Hello and welcome to this Sea Trade Maritime podcast. I'm Emma Howe, Maritime Digital and Customer Development Director at Informa Markets. In this Sea Trade Maritime Masterclass episode, I'll be exploring a career specialising in offshore marine with CEO of Synergy Offshore Marine, Fazzle Fazzleboy. With a long career in almost every aspect of offshore marine and experience at the very top of one of the world's leading offshore marine businesses, Fazzle shared with me some valuable tips and stories from his career that I'm sure will be beneficial to many maritime professionals starting or progressing their careers in this exciting industry sector. I started by asking Fazzle to take us back to where it all began. Actually, it all started in Pakistan. My father actually represented several American companies, mostly US companies like Honeywell, GE, 3M, Raytheon, etc. in the engineering and services sector. And one of the major companies was Honeywell. So when I graduated from NYU, I applied to Honeywell and I got selected. And because of the long company association with them, we've been working with them since 1952, I got on what was called a fast track management program. Somehow Honeywell knew that I had a background with Honeywell and I would probably continue wherever I decided to end up. So they put me through this training program in Minneapolis, which is the headquarters. Then they the factory in Chicago. Then their sales locations in Boston and London. And then sent me to Saudi Arabia for my sins. You know, way back in, this is the early 80s now, this is 84. And I spent a year in Saudi and that of course drove me to marriage. And then I got actually got married in London and then got convinced somehow by my brother and my father to come back to Pakistan because we were actually seeing the budding democracy. Benazir had just come back. The younger generation was trying to fight the generals and try to find a way. So there was a lot of excitement. And in that sort of euphoria, I went back home and that patriotism, I went back home and joined the business and typically put in my place just as a particular person in a particular slot. So there's no family bonuses and benefits. Came in as a professional. And my first job was to take a chicken farm and convert that into a factory to make switchgear. And we did. So we did cable trays and switchgear and other construction accessories. And that led into the projects business where we started doing installation work. And because of our relationship with GE, we did a lot of power generation activity, the General Electric and then fertilizer plants, which is very big in Pakistan, with all the leading contractors, Namprojetti, Jayoda, JGC. And eventually, Pakistan entered this phase of doing independent power projects where the private sector would build a power plant and sell electricity to the grid. So we did about three or four of those projects. And the largest one was a 100 megawatt plant for $100 million. So these are substantial projects. But as usually a high-profile project has high-profile interests and the governments fell and the next government came, they canceled the program. My clients all ran away. They owed us millions of dollars. And in this political malaise, somehow we had to wind up the company. And I came to Dubai, getting a second chance of life at the age of 42 in 99 and started afresh. And my first job was again in automation and that's why I was hired. I ran a little company called Dart Automation, which is a subset of Nico. My office was a porter cabin on the Nico premises and I had all of 14 people, including the T-boy and the driver. So I was really now a tycoon, right? And that's how it all started in 99. 
And from there, they sent me up to Adyar in Abu Dhabi to look after the fabrication business and oil and gas offshore, because that's a sector that I did in Pakistan as well. And then I took over the ship repair business at Nico, built my little concrete ship in Alcoz as my legacy to Dubai. And eventually, I think they kicked me upstairs to, so I could do less damage. And they made me into the CEO of the Topaz Group. I like you. <laughs> well, yeah, well it, was, it, was, it was a lot of fun because you know, it, it was the first mandate was to, to brand Topaz. We had by now acquired Doha Marine Services in Qatar. We had BUE in the Caspian. We had Nico World in, in, in Dubai. But no one knew us as you know, a hundred vessel company. So we created this brand called Topaz Marine and took all our engineering services, Adia, Nico, et cetera, put them into Topaz Engineering and then started creating this sort of a solid brand coming out of Dubai in the Middle East. And at the end of it, when, when my last year in office, I mean, our turnover was about $500 million and we had $70 million profit. So it was a pretty reputable and strong company, which was actually destined or we were trying to do the IPO in London in 2011. But circumstances weren't kind. We hit the Arab Spring and after doing 147 roadshows in, I don't know, 14 cities or whatever, uh, we had to actually pull back. And then somehow, you know, when you come after spending two years of your life building a future of, with a very different profile to come back to same old, same old is pretty challenging. And I think you need a change at that time just to, to reorient yourselves. And that's when I decided to leave. And I set up Synergy Offshore and 10 years later, here I am talking to you. Okay, so that kind of tells me that your career has been by being in the right place at the right time, as opposed to following any type of structure. Would you agree with that? I, I absolutely agree with that. And the, the only couple of things I would like to say, I think we have a pretty big hand in sort of controlling our own destiny, but there have to be opportunities. New York has a wonderful lotto system or a lottery system, and the catchphrase is you've got to be in it to win it. It's so important that when these opportunities come, you're actually got to be out there looking for them. Otherwise, you'll walk right by them and not even know they were an opportunity. So, yes, right place, right time. But if you're looking the wrong way, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so you've got to be looking for opportunities and then be able to grab them and then make the most of them, even if they're different from what you might have expected. You mentioned at the start of our conversation that a lot of your career path was driven around your family and the family business. When you left that business, did you have a role model that you looked at and thought, I want to be like that person or I'd like them to mentor me? Well, it's interesting. You know, I've never had a specific mentor that I sort of wanted to model my entire life around, but I've had very fortunately, some very, very strong personalities who've mentored different aspects. Going back to my mother, she was a dermatologist who graduated from Scotland back in 1947 or something, which was right after the war. And, and all she would get was desiccated eggs and things. It were very difficult times for a young Indian girl to go for a MBBS was quite unusual. And that was a kind of drive. And she eventually ended up dedicating her life to leprosy and the eradication of leprosy in Pakistan, which she succeeded in doing. Actually, we succeeded in doing it as a nation, but a few years after her death. But that's where most of her life was spent purely on, you know, she just did it as charity work. But it was a huge, remarkable accomplishment. And that sort of gave me the commitment and dedication part of my personality. My father taught me some very remarkable philosophies. The first one, how to disagree without being disagreeable. 
The other one is to, to have a tremendous attention to detail, both of which are required. These are valuable lessons. You know, we can look at the big picture all you want and you can see way ahead on the horizon. But if you're not watching the details around you, not that you should be myopic, but you need to be watching and crossing those T's and dotting the I's if you actually want to produce a first-class product or service. And then through life, I've had individuals at different stages who have actually been very helpful. And this is one of the tragedies of this pandemic that we're going through. It's not just about face-to-face brick-and-mortar offices or working from home or being efficient. It's this opportunities for the young leadership in the company to actually interface with the seniors. Watch how a particularly tricky situation was handled. Learn from that experience. The corridor conversations, you know, the, the, the chit-chat before the meeting starts. That's where such pearls of wisdom are dropped. And if they're picked up, that's part of mentoring. And it doesn't have to be a formal mentoring process. But you see things, you see traits, you see how difficult situations are handled. And that's a huge learning. And so much of that is being lost because everything is just channeled one-to-one into your Zoom meeting or into your individual meeting room without having the benefit of that senior leadership around you. And talking about that leadership, it's been said to me that you've always had a very hands-on approach. And that suggests from what you just said that that's key to successful leadership. Is that what stood you out as a leader? What, what, What do you think makes a great leader? I think what makes a great leader is, first of all, you've got to make sure that people are following you, whatever you're doing, because if they're not following you, all you're doing is going for a walk. So leadership is a tricky thing. And being in the position of leadership does not make you a leader. So you can be the boss. That doesn't mean you're the leader. So the leader actually is somebody who inspires, who can actually take a cause and move it forward and sort of be the inspiration that actually brings a team together. A leader can't do anything by himself. You know, he's not a woodsman going into the forest all by himself to build himself a log cabin. Today's times, if you do not have that solidity of your team and, and a sort of a, a confluence of purpose, it's going to be very difficult to achieve anything. And I think the ability to listen and to manage, and this goes back you know, to a sort of point about education and where you know I'm a business major. What am I doing in an engineering environment? You know, going to university is more about they teach you how to think rather than just what to think. So in that sense, if you have the right attitude, it's so much more important than having the right aptitude. Aptitude can be taught. Attitude becomes a part of your DNA. You know, something that you've learned, something that you've sort of become a part of your being. And that's all a part of what the leadership has to recognize. Give me attitude anytime and I'll create the aptitude. But if you give me aptitude without the attitude, I can't do anything with it. It's like saying, what's the point of being an expert marksman if you don't know what to shoot at? So that part of of education where humanities, culture, uh, history, these are the lessons that you need to understand and appreciate. Perhaps a little bit more than just arithmetic. Not that we don't need the engineers, not that we don't need the physics and chemistry. But from a leadership standpoint, I think what you need to know is how to manage people and be surrounded by people who know more than you and be able to not be intimidated by that and say, yeah, please, I'm happy to be a student all my life. If you can guide me, if I can learn from you, then we've got a team. What would you say to somebody who's left university, they're thinking about joining a big corporate, and you've just mentioned that leadership is key. 
how would somebody in that position gauge whether that company has good leadership? What would you advise them to ask in an interview scenario or look for when they're researching that company? You know, Emma, this is a very tricky question because some very, very fundamental principles that I grew up with are rapidly changing. My daughter taught me something which was quite different. I mean, she was changing a job for the, maybe the third time in two years or three years. And I said, you know, this is not very good. It's going to look terrible on your resume. You can't hold a job. She goes, Pa, what's wrong with you? If I stay in the same place for more than three years, then the people think I don't have any initiative. You know, and I'm not bold and I'm not looking after myself. I'm just sitting there growing with the company as it grows. So that whole concept of a company, how long have the people been there? What's their turnover like? Have the same people? How many managers have started off in a junior position? Those matrices are all changing. This is the the year of the millenniums, and they are different. We've got to learn as much from them as they have to learn from us when we redefine the new concepts of leadership. So the models that, that, that I grew up with, when I used to look at her CV or a resume when I was hiring, I'd look at if the guy's had more than five jobs, I don't want him, he's not a stayer. Today, that's not the way it works. So those models are changing. But what I would say to anybody new joining the workforce in, in, in whichever category, don't be afraid of challenges. Don't get intimidated by the job. If you've got the basic confidence and the skill level, be honest with yourself. If you feel you understand what needs to be done, or feel you can understand what needs to be done with a little bit more application, go for it. Let the adrenaline take over. Get that little nervousness. It's okay to feel scared and it's okay to take on challenges that are bigger than you. There are people there who will help you. So if you can embrace that change, not be afraid of it, yes, I think any company you can actually thrive. And the beauty of today's world is really now, because of the same things we just talked about, if you don't like it, change. And that's so much more acceptable today than it was when I was a young man joining a workforce. So those are some real opportunities for people today that we never had before. That kind of leads me on to the question around geography. You've obviously lived as an expatriate in a variety of different locations. How would you advise somebody to prepare for leaving the comfort of their homeland and traveling and living somewhere else entirely? Well, I guess there are two parts to that. One is, you know, if you, if you look at it from a standpoint of venturing into a new territory for new business or moving to a new location, first of all, you've got to get rid of some all the preconceptions, you know, because things are changing so fast. You've got to be able to zero base your approach. That doesn't mean you don't read up. It doesn't mean you don't Google. It doesn't mean you don't ask questions. You learn from the history and you learn from the past but you don't base your decisions on that. You've got to go into these areas with an open mind, go there, check it out, see if it suits you individually. I'm actually thinking of retiring to Antigua. And my one way of thinking about that is I'll actually go there and maybe spend three months, you know, and then find out you know, where's the Jumeirah of the world and where's downtown. Okay, so this is Emirates Hills, that's kind of nice. And then you spend a couple of months there, test the waters, see literally, and, and see if that actually works for you. And then make a decision. But you've got to give it a fair shot. If it's a business, you've got to make sure that you've got really empowered people that you place into these frontier markets. Because the accuracy of your decision making as an executive is purely based on the accuracy and the clarity of your inputs. So if you have strong people on ground who are who are tell you what needs to be done rather than waiting to be told what needs to be done, 
then you'll be taking advantage of that particular market. Frontier markets, I mean, like Brazil, and I assume that's what you're talking about, Brazil or West Africa, some of the areas that the Caspian, where Kazakhstan is so different from Azerbaijan, and Turkmenistan is another story. So when you think about these places, you've got to be very sensitive to what is actually happening there and what is happening in terms of how to absorb. And there you need to be very careful about having the right ethical and professional local partnerships. There's very little that can be accomplished today. We're no longer in the colonial era. And therefore just going there and doing it our way, because that's how we do it, it does work in some cases, but it's not the classic model for today's successes. And if you come to the UA today, you have to be part of the ICV. You've got to have the in-country value. You go to Saudi Arabia, income total value add, the ICTIVA, you've got to comply. These are minimum essentials. And if you sit there and fight it, you'll end up just being a Luddite. So you've got to be progressive. And it's the way to embrace change. I remember many years ago, you giving me a lot of advice around the Caspian region when we were looking to do some projects there. And your advice was the same then as, as it has been now. And that is that you have to integrate with the local community and understand that culture and do business on that level. And that held us in good stead. So thank you for that advice along the way as well. Do you wish you'd done anything differently? The one thing that it did make reflected on time and time again is when Honeywell offered me this fast track program that actually said that, you know, if you go through this two year training that they gave me and then go to Saudi and spend a couple of years there, we see you back at corporate running international operations and being part of the C-suite within five years. Now to tell a 27 year old that is hugely exciting for a Fortune 500 company. And I walked away from that and I went back to Pakistan. I just wonder if I had gone back to the States, because at that time, they had sponsored me, I had a green card, and I gave all of that up as well. But I could have been the CEO of Honeywell, maybe, you know, at that point, because all options were open and doors were open. And I was part of that very sort of fortunate set of candidates that got into this fast track program. So I have wondered about that, what life might have been like, but no regrets. I have led such a fulfilled life and has been so varied. It's such an incredible journey, been to so many places and really enjoyed the process. And I think that's really what some definition of happiness, right? It's the journey, not just the goal. And I've certainly enjoyed the journey so far. Going back to 2011, when you started your own company, Synergy Offshore, why did you decide Dubai? What made it the right location? Well, that's actually the simplest question you've ever asked. <laughs> it's just such a great city. First of all, it's at the crossroads. You've got all the travel hubs, you've got all the telecoms, you've got all the luxuries of the of the East with all the professionalism and systems of the West. You've got the social life, you've got the cuisines, and you've got five months of fabulous weather, just like now. To me, that was the easiest part. But the reason why I started Synergy Offshore, I was just so exhausted by the end of that whole IPO and the final couple of years that took place. I was smoking two packs of Marlboro Red per day, drinking eight mugs of Colombian black coffee and going to an osteopath twice a week. It was almost like I had a date with the person, but I was just exhausted. And there was no way I was going to get into the job market. I don't think I could have, I was just too tired. So I wanted to do something that I could do at my own pace. I have this whole repository of knowledge now that I've gained over the years. I want to sort of capitalize on it. I want to share, what am I going to do with all of the stuff that I know? And why not do it in a place where I've spent the last 15 years when those that time, 14 years or whatever, 
and take advantage of that situation. So here I am in my comfort zone with people who I know and people who know me. My customers are the same and my friends are the same. And many of my customers are my friends. So it was very natural for me to stay in Dubai as a continuation of all the work that I've done since 99. Because to stay in Dubai, you have to be able to afford it, which is the other, the one of the downsides, it's not a cheap city. So you have to earn some money at least. <laughs> I can vouch for that. <laughs> And now I also read that you advise the global energy group Douglas Westwood Limited as a senior advisor. What do you find rewarding about this and why did you decide to take on that role? Douglas Westwood is now rebranded to be called the Westwood Global Energy Group. They've got the international depth of oil field services and, and they know whatever is to be known in terms of the overall picture of what's happening with the oil and gas space, both offshore and onshore. When they are doing a job in this region, I provide what I call commercial due diligence. So they need the information from a global standpoint. I provide the local relevance and the local context. So if there's a company over here, I can go and look at the management structure, understand the business plan, look at the company's capability to meet that business plan. Can they, can they actually walk their talk? How strong is their, is their management system? How strong is the HSCQ system? So all the things that, that I've spent time developing and being part of in terms of growing Topaz and being part of that process, I can apply from an analytical framework. And for once, I can be the guy who asks the questions rather than the guy who has to answer the questions. I mean, so so nice not to be the CEO anymore. But, but this actually gives my perspective into the process. So when they pitch to a client in this region, they can say truly they've got global as well as regional expertise. That's the sort of combination that makes us such a powerful combination. I guess lastly, because we've discussed a lot now, but going back to those aspiring maritime professionals who want to start their journey, what advice would you give to them? I guess my attitude and aptitude, uh, the comment earlier really applies, whether it's to maritime or anything else. I think you could be very careful of today's world because you know the maritime sector has so fallen out of favor not today and we were lamenting 10 years ago on the shortage of crew in fact ever since i remember being involved in the marine business we've been talking about the potential shortage of crew and then when we got the crew we wouldn't let them go <laughs> we put them on a ship and lo and behold six months later they're still on the ship and the sector didn't have the voice it was strong enough to push government to let them have a crew change People have actually, and, and companies, and this is part of the Sea Trade Awards that, that I've been fortunate to be a judge on, where one of the, the questions is what, is, what was your company's pandemic response? And it's amazing what some companies have done and the lengths to which they've gone to look after their seafarers, whether it's chartering flights, whether it's diverting ship to different ports. But it's very heartwarming to see the kind of passionate response that boardrooms have taken and CEOs have taken to get their crew safely ashore and back to their families and, and look after the mental health of the crew, which is as, as, you know, as important as the physical health. So, so, so there, there are very many positives, but the sector itself is not as appealing to what it was 20, 25 years ago. So if you're coming into this field, you've got to choose which area you want to go into. If you are now getting into the tech side, the amount of digitalization that's happening now in shipping, which is catching up. And that happens to be got to be the, 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 the buzzword for the, for, the, for the next at least two or three years. If you're getting into the details of the DP, it's more like playing you know, a video game than actually being a mariner. 
it's so high tech that the computer programmers are going to probably do a better job. And, and that's sad, but that's how everything is. It's all based on sensors and positioners and everything else. And you're just actually pressing the buttons. So there are many routes into the shipping business. And all of it isn't about tying reef knots anymore. So technology is a very good entrance. And, and with the level of communication and video and broadband and everything else happening, that alienation of life at sea, the window has become a little bit, little bit better, pandemic notwithstanding. I am going to ask you one more question because I was genuinely fascinated by your story about your mother and what she was able to achieve. That leads me on to a question about women in this industry as well and diversity. Do you think enough is being done? Well, I think the UAE is leaps and bounds ahead than most places. I don't think there are any women on the boards over here yet, but you look at what the government is doing and you look at the amount of ladies who are involved in Engineer Hessa, for example, what she's doing with the FTA. You look at some of the other, Reem Al-Hashmi, you look at Noura, Dr. Noura from Makta Gateway. We've got some real heavyweights. You know, this is just from the Emirati side. There's also a lot of expats who are deeply involved, whether it's Rania or Jasmine or all of these women who are in the leadership position in the legal industry. Then you've got the commercial side with Sadas. There's so many women today who pop up when you think about the marine industry. Vanessa on the AMAC side, on all facets, you're going to find a woman or two who has now risen and broken that glass ceiling and is standing up and being heard. So... Is enough done? Well, there's never enough. You know, I mean, how much is enough? I don't know. I mean, I, I think the fact that we're talking about it is good. I think that this awareness is good. I think because we have some representation doesn't mean we should rest on our laurels. It certainly should be an agenda for everyone and every board. And to see more people in management positions, to see more people in directorship positions. I think that's the next push for women's empowerment in this area. And by the way, I'm one of the early sacrificial I'm one of the misters in the WISTA that they started up over here in terms of the Women in Shipping and Trade Association. So I was one of the first guys to join. So I was called the first mister in the WISTA. So I have <laughs> faith in this process and I've been supporting them for quite some time. Thank you for listening to this Sea Trade Maritime podcast. You've been listening to CEO of Synergy Offshore Marine, Fazal Fazalboy, as he guided me through the opportunities and challenges he's embraced over an impressive career in the offshore marine sector. Don't forget, if you like this podcast, you can listen to more in the Masterclass series during Sea Trade Maritime Middle East Virtual. You can also find a whole host of additional on-demand podcasts, webinars and white papers at seatrade-maritime.com. So please do take a look and sign up to our free news and information newsletters. We hope you've enjoyed listening and we'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.